I'm Glenn Crooks, and this is On Frame. Gary Mackay Stephen. He'll be celebrating his 29th birthday on August the 31st. He won't play, though, in a New York City FC kit until July the 9th. The Scottish winger, who played over the last two seasons for Aberdeen of the Scottish Premiership, has signed with the boys from the Bronx. Mackay Stevens' contract had expired with Aberdeen, and despite the appearance that he was heading to Portsmouth of England's League One, well, he's now a member of the New York City Front Corps. So I've seen your tweets, some supporting the move, others of you curious as to why uh, New York City would bring on another attacking player. Well, in a moment, I've got a journalist who has followed him closely through the years, and he'll give us a thorough description of the player and person. Also today, our Pro Soccer USA editor and founder, Alicia Del Gallo. She's in France covering the World Cup and has uncovered some stories beyond the game that I think you'll find of great interest. A couple of history lessons and a special Father's Day in Paris. Joining us now is uh, Ben Palmer. He covers Aberdeen for The Times in Scotland, so very close to that club. And that is the former home of Gary McKay Stephen, the winger acquired by New York City FC from the Dons in the Scottish Premiership. Ben, uh, welcome to the program. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Glenn. Well, it's it's great to have you, and I, and I, I do appreciate you sharing whatever you can tell us you know, about Gary. Before we get to him as a person, as a player, I uh, wanted to focus a bit uh, on the steps that led up to this transfer. I, I, the one thing we, we seem to know is that New York City had an interest in uh, Gary McKay, Stephen, in, in the winter months, yes? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we made the approach several months ago uh, when it became clear that McKay, Stephen, was out of contract at Aberdeen in the summer. And everybody kind of expected that that deal would get done fairly quickly and, and he would go to New York. Um, however, he kind of stalled, and apparently the, drop, the deal was taken off the table, and the months just kind of rolled on without anything else really happening. So we get to the end of the season, he's still telling Derek McInnes, the Aberdeen manager, that he's open to staying in Aberdeen, he hasn't made his decision on his future, but again, nobody really knows where he's going, and then earlier this week, it becomes clear that he's maybe going to Portsmouth, he's... Uh, by all reports that he's close to going down to Portsmouth, taking a medical and signing for them. But then at the very, very last minute, New York put the deal back on the table and, well, he's, he's coming over to the MLS now. So the, a couple of things here. Why was the deal originally taken off the table back in whatever it was, January or February? Well, I think what what we heard was was that apparently New York, and I mean, I'm not clear on this, so I don't cover New York every day, had a change in system. They went to a diamond. And because Mackay Stephen is a, an expansive winger, he wasn't going to fit into the system. So, I mean, that, that might just be manager talk. That might just be a polite way of saying that they lost interest. But clearly something's changed there for, uh, I think it's Dominic Tarrant to say, yeah, we, we want this guy again. So and and just to to check and you you've helped me out here. It's Mackay Stephen, not McKay Stephen, like I originally yeah, said. Yeah, Mackay Stephen would be the the proper way of pronouncing it. All right, well done. So uh, Portsmouth. So at at the last moment here. So um, I heard the possibility. I I don't know uh, if you could confirm this that uh, Portsmouth actually expected him 
to come in on the Friday that he actually flew to Manchester for his physical. Is there any truth to that as far as you know? I think reading the the media down in Portsmouth, they, the deal was done. I mean, that was the the uh, sort of impression I got from the media down there. Um, but I mean, Mackay Stephen is a very difficult guy to judge. There's been several times when we'd sat around the table with the Aberdeen manager McInnes this year, and said to him, "Who who's what's happening with Mackay Stephen? Is he signing? Is he going?" And his simple answer is he, he didn't know. A lot of the times when managers say these kind of things, they're usually just keeping it low. They're not letting on what's actually happening. But with Mackay Stephen, it seems to actually be the case. Nobody had a clue what was going on with him. So if uh, if he's uh, made the decision to go to New York City, uh, it would uh, one would assume that New York City is certainly... Uh, <laughs> You know, wants his services, and I and I I read what you're saying about uh, the change in system, but I think what's happened uh, here now, Ben, and one of the reasons that maybe the interest has been peaked is uh, New York City can play out of a, a couple of different shapes, and one of them is a four-three-three with wingers, and they don't particularly have really true wingers. You know, that bust yeah. to the end line, things like that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Mackay Steven uh, as a player and, and as maybe this uh, true winger? Yeah, Mackay Steven is a winger in the old-fashioned sense in that he, he takes on his man, he skips the ball past him and then he leaves him in the dust. He, he, he kind of made a reputation for himself uh, as that in Scotland from a very young age. When he burst through at Dundee United several years ago, now so much was expected of this guy. He had everything. He, he was fast. He incredible skill for a Scottish player, which was uh, very rare. And he, he could finish as well. But then, of course, he went to Celtic. His career kind of died out a little bit. And in the last couple of years at Aberdeen, he, he kind of found his mojo again. He was getting past players, scoring goals. It was flashes of the old Mackay Stephen, the tricks, the just the good old-fashioned wing wizardry. So, yeah, he's basically just an old-fashioned winger. He'll get past the, past the full-back, whip the ball in, and hopefully your, your striker will tuck it away. So you talked about his skill and how that might be unique to a Scottish football. Where exactly did he develop those capabilities? We know that on the youth side... Uh, he was with uh, Liverpool and, and Fulham. But uh, what about his background, do you think, uh, or his upbringing or whatever uh, made him so skillful? I think it was just natural. Uh, some people are born with these things. What you have to remember about that Dundee United team was that, well, I mean, you, you won't remember, but it was a very young, exciting team. It had uh, Gary McKay, Stephen, had Johnny Russell, who's now in the MLS as well. It had Stuart Armstrong, who's now playing the Premier League. At one point, it had Andy Robertson, who's now won the Champions League. So it was a very just a young, aggressive, pacey side. And because Stephen bought into that, and he stood out, whether that he was taught to be a tricky winger at a young age, I don't know. But certainly, I think people get the impression that he was just a, a naturally tricky sort of player. According to a transfer market, 21 goals and 110 appearances for Dundee. Then on to Celtic, where you said uh, it, his uh, career kind of decelerated. What what exactly happened at Celtic? What held him back there? Because it appeared uh, early on uh, in his career he was getting matches and, and, and contributing, but that yeah. kind of waned. 
Yeah, I mean, Celtic. Celtic's a different platform to pretty much every other club in Scotland, apart from Rangers. I mean, you go from playing at Dundee United, where you're getting crowds of 10,000 a week, to Celtic, where it's 60,000 a week. You're playing the Champions League, and there's a lot. You have to win every week. Players at Celtic have to win every week. Whether he could have handled that or not, I think people maybe just felt he wasn't quite cut out for it. Brendan Rodgers came in, who of course transformed Celtic. They went undefeated. They won every match, every domestic match that season. They won all three trophies. And Mackay Stevens was kind of a peripheral figure. Uh, he, he never really, Rodgers never really saw him as a Celtic player. And well, he, he came to Aberdeen in 2017, so that's a couple of years ago now. And at Aberdeen, he had uh, success, although there were. Some injury uh, issues, a concussion, uh, a rolled yeah. ankle, which kept him out. Uh, and and is that something uh, through the course of his career, or or maybe I, I don't have this quite correct, but uh, give us an idea about uh, <laughs> is he fra- is he a fragile player, or were these things where he was just battling and 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 uh, suffered the injuries? One reason I think he'll prosper in um uh, in the states is because in Scotland. Tricky wingers, fast wingers, they get rough treatment. Players are quite content to just wipe them out as soon as they get by them. And I, uh, and I might be reading this wrong, but I certainly don't think that happens as regularly in the M- MLS as it does in the Scottish Premiership. The two injuries he had last season at Aberdeen were both very unfortunate. The first one was a concussion against Celtic in the semi-final or the final of the Betfred Cup when he clashed with Dedrick Boyata, the Belgian defender. And it was horrific to watch uh, dead silence at Hamden. So it, it kind of took him a bit of time to get back up to speed. Obviously, there were concussion protocols, which the club had to follow. And then when he came back, he, it was against Rangers, broke into the box, um, won a penalty. Aberdeen scored a penalty and he played on for another five minutes. Then all of a sudden, it's like, well, this injury he picked up um, when being fouled is maybe a bit worse than we initially thought. And then he, he played a couple of games here and there after that, but he never really got going again. So so last season, he, he started the season incredibly well. If you go back to last August, he, he was one of Aberdeen's best players up until that injury against Celtic in the Betfred Cup final. Then after that, he, he just never really got going again. It was hampered, hampered by uh, another injury against Rangers later on in the season. Were you? Uh, he had a match. Uh, I looked it up. Uh, December sixteenth, two thousand seventeen. Uh, I wonder if you were at this match where he had three goals and one assist. The victory over Hibernian, four-one uh, yeah. victory. So he contributed all goals. Was that? I mean, statistically, that looks like his uh, best game as a professional. Uh, how did that go? I mean, did, was it as impressive as the stats would indicate? I remember I had a quick look at this game before you called me just to refresh my uh, memory on it. He, he was untouchable. You, you just couldn't get near him. The first goal was brilliant. Close. Uh, the Hibernian players just gave him that little too much time that day. Just give him that half yard and he will tear you apart. So the first goal, he nutmegs a player and then buries this lovely low shot into the corner. The second goal is terrific aggression to steal the ball off the Hibernian defender, F.A. Ambrose, driving on goal, get away from the Hibernian defence, and again beat the goalkeeper. And the third goal was a terrific piece of skill. Took the ball down with his uh, rear end, <laughs> uh, to be polite, uh, touched it inside, picked the ball up again, and then buried this lovely strike across the goalkeeper on his weaker right foot. So, I mean, that, that was Mackay Stephen at his very best. It, it was everything that he, he could do just in one showing. So, if he is... Uh... 
fully fit and recovered from uh, any injury situation, uh, you anticipate that uh, he can do well in, in Major League Soccer. And I know you, you, it's not a league that you, you see maybe as often, uh, I yeah. know as often as uh, many of the people listening and myself. But if you assume that New York City doesn't have a, a true old-fashioned winger on their side, which I don't believe they do, and no. and they're in a system at times where, where that would, uh, you know, would, would call for the winger, you, you think he can get it done? Yeah, I think he can. I mean, uh, just as, as a Scotsman, uh, the gauge I would use is Johnny Russell. Johnny Russell, who seems to be playing very well, very scoring all the time. And I would put Mackay Stephen at about that level. I would say for similar uh, capable capabilities of players. So I think Mackay Stephen, and because he's not going to get, the, well, certainly I don't think he'd get the rough treatment that he gets in Scotland, just getting kicked off the ball, players just sort of diving into challenges against him. Yeah, I think he'd prosper in the MLS. I really think it's a league that would suit him. Johnny Russell, you bring him up, and uh, we're all familiar with uh, the success he's had at Sporting KC. So uh, you compare him favorably. Are they uh, the styles similar? Uh, Russell is really a, a, a his mentality is clear from the outset. Yeah, I think I meant more just as in sort of the level of player that they are. I think. And I mean, of, of course, we played together at Dundee United as well, um, very briefly. So they were part of that very exciting Dundee United team um, from several years ago. Um, Mackay Stephen, I would say, is the type of player who would take the ball wider, whereas I, I think Russell's a more direct. Uh, I think Mackay sure. Stephen would be happy to take on the fullback, get the ball a little wider, then get the ball in. Uh, but in terms of sort of what we're capable of, I, I think there would be a around a similar level because even in the last couple of years, Mackay um, Stephen and Russell have kind of just been on the fringes of the Scotland team as well. Mackay, Johnny Russell perhaps more so because Scotland lacks strikers, uh, whereas we have an abundance of wingers at the minute. So, I mean, that kind of suggests to yourself as well, but they're about the same level, they're about the same uh, capabilities as players. Can you, uh, uh, you've covered the team and uh, I would imagine have, have talked to Gary Mackay Stephen uh, often. What, can you give us an idea of what kind of person he is uh, off the field? Uh, what kind of teammate he is? Uh, how do his teammates feel about him? Oh, I think the, the guys love him in, in the Aberdeen squad. He, he's sort of a jovial guy. He seems to get on with them. But nobody really knows what goes on in Gary Mackay Stephen's head. There was, there was a bizarre story over here in Scotland a couple, maybe last year where everybody thought Gary Mackay Stevens was this timid, quiet guy, but then he'd went on a night out with uh, his former teammate Stuart Armstrong and ended up falling into the River Kelvin in Glasgow and had to be treated for hypothermia. And all of a sudden, people are thinking, how's this happened? Apparently, it was just it was just hijinks on a on a night out. So, I mean, certainly, he seems to, he seems to be this sort of jovial guy who, who was always very welcome around the change room. People liked him. Manager liked him, but he's just a very difficult guy to predict. You just you just don't really know what's going on in his head. All right, Ben. Well, uh, that's uh, uh, we couldn't get a, a clearer look at, at the man Gary Mackay Stephen, who will be uh, uh, running soon for uh, New York City FC uh, on the flank. We feel probably on the left side. I guess he's played left or right, correct? And and yeah. Yeah, he's versatile. I mean, Derek McKinnis, the LD manager, again, he likes to play him left or right. You can see him cutting inside and getting a shot away in the left hand uh, on his left foot from the right wing. But, yeah, traditionally, he'll probably play on the left side. 
All right. So uh, this is Ben Palmer. Uh, he follows Aberdeen closely, uh, covering for the Times in Scotland. And Ben, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, good luck to you. And uh, I assume uh, you'll be at Aberdeen's preseason. So enjoy that as well. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. Thanks for having me on. Gary Mackay, Stephen, hasn't competed in a match since the end of February. His last goal scored February the 2nd. And he won't be eligible to compete for New York City uh, until the transfer window opens. And that's on July the 9th. So uh, who better to bring in to talk about the World Cup on our program, On Frame, presented by Pro Soccer USA, than the editor and co-founder of Pro Soccer USA, Alicia Del Gallo. Uh, she's been writing a lot. I I'm assuming sleeping very little. <laughs> Alicia, what's happening? How are you? Good. How are you? Are you sleeping? I mean, not Barely. during not during this interview, but I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of during this interview as well. No, um, yeah, I still haven't really adjusted. So since I've been here for about a little over two weeks now, I don't think I'm going to. <laughs> so <laughs> I have, have accepted that I will go to sleep at 4 a.m. and <laughs> sleep for about five hours every night. <laughs> well, we know you're working hard because uh... – under your byline for, for one story recently, I think it was yesterday, uh, you've got the uh, the time frame on a bus in northern France. <laughs> That's So yeah. I think that was the the uh, FIFA and IFAB coming back with uh, the yellow card uh, proclamation for goalkeepers who were uh, have been encroaching that the, they, they aren't going to get a red card if they move twice in a game, you know, so I think they, they made a good move there, but... Uh, but on right. a bus in northern France, that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's where I was. We were we were leaving Le Havre and going to Reims, and it was about a four-and-a-half-hour bus ride, and that news dropped. So, um, you know, I looked up, and I said, where are we? And nobody knew. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's what I put. I kind of did it as a, as a joke, but um, everybody thought it was great. And not only... You know, did we leave it for online at Pro Soccer USA? But uh, editors of Tribune newspapers uh, across the country left it as well. So it was, it ended up being a good thing. Well, that's excellent. Well, it's always supposed to be where you are, right? So what the heck? Yeah, it's where I was. All right. Well, yeah, I, rather than focus on the game stories, and you've written those as well, uh, I think you've done some really interesting, uh, important, and and fun features. And uh, you mentioned that uh, you were leaving Le Havre, uh, and that's after the uh, U.S.-Sweden match. Uh, but ahead of that uh, final group state match, uh, you met Steve Melnikoff, a 99-year-old uh, World War II veteran, a survivor. So how did he fit into this uh, World Cup story in France? Yes, yeah, so we met him um, on a day trip to Omaha Beach, um, where the invasion of Normandy happened. And he um, he was there to educate and answer questions and kind of accompany a tour of friends and family of the United States Women's National Team. And he also was part of the three or four veterans who showed the players around back in January when they visited. So he showed the players around, then he showed their, their families around uh, six months later, and he actually went to the game the following night as well. So it was really interesting, um, just, you know, impactful 
thing to be there and listen to him. He's 99 years old. You know, a lot of these veterans, they're, they're not going to be around much longer. So very special experience to to be able to walk those beaches with him and walk the cemeteries and and hear his story firsthand. Well, you you wrote that uh, there's an estimated 3% of American World War II veterans still alive. So like you said, it's uh, there aren't many uh, remaining to, to speak to and and to, to tell the story. Yeah. And, and here's a guy that still has shrapnel in his body. He was shot a couple of times. Yeah, he was shot in the shoulder and in the back, and he said he still has some shrapnel in his shoulder. They said that removing it back then would have caused too much damage. So for 75 years, he's had that shrapnel in his shoulder. Um, It took him a really long time to get up the courage to return to the scene. He thought he would go back for the 50th anniversary, and he couldn't mentally do it. So he went back for the 60th. Uh, He's been back for every five-year anniversary since. They just did the 75th anniversary, and he's gone back multiple times in between. Um, And he, the day that we saw him was the day after the 75th anniversary of when he was shot. Wow. And and the fact that he just couldn't bring himself there after so many years, I mean, what how, how that must have impacted him. Just, uh, well, yeah. just incredible. Yes, he, he was incredible. The experience was incredible. And you could see it on everybody's faces. You know, everybody asked questions. The, the friends and family were parents. Uh, you know, Megan Rapinoe's nephew, who just graduated high school, and his one of his friends was there. So, you know, all ages, all spectrums, just completely engrossed in what he was saying and asking follow-up questions and walking these grounds with him. It was uh, you know, it was just a once in a lifetime experience that you could tell changed things for, for everybody there. Oh, it's nice to uh, pay tribute to uh, Steve Melnikoff. There were a couple of history lessons while you've uh, been in France. Uh, earlier on at REM, uh, the, uh, the headline in your article, uh, for your article, History of Revolutionary Women Makes REM Fitting Host for U.S. Women's National Team Opening Match. So explain to us. Yeah, and now we're back here. So we just got back here. And actually, you know, it looks like REM or Reams, but they're trying to teach us how to say it correctly. Oh, you have to roll little, the R? You roll the R a little, little bit? It's a little more yeah. like, like REM. REM. It's actually like rant. Oh, rant? Okay. Rant. Yeah. So um, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough to say. We, we all, you know, say it different ways. But yeah, so I was here um, when the U.S arrived in France. So this was where the site of their first game, the 13-0 route of Thailand. And when the U.S. arrived, they came to this hotel and one of the deputy mayors um, was there with a group of young girls uh, to welcome them and sing and dance. And he gave a little speech and kind of touched briefly. He said, you know, we have a really long history here um, of women footballers and we're excited now to include you in that history and we support your fight for uh, equality. And so I kind of was like, Hmm, you know, he didn't elaborate. He didn't really say anything. So when he and said that everybody kind of like, Whoa, so what, 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 what's going on? Right. You know, what has Nobody, been the history? I mean, everybody smiled and said, thank you. And kind of was like, Oh, I didn't know that. That's really cool. And that was the end of it. But of course, you know, my mind, I was like, Whoosh what's the history? (laughs) Um, so I kind of started digging. I did some research online. Um, and I found, I found that history 
um, that, you know, when France banned women's football uh, in the early 1900s, Reims was one of the places that kind of was responsible for the rebirth of it. Um, They put together a women's team when the sport was still banned and actively fought uh, to bring it back and were one of the inaugural teams um, of the new league, new women's league when it was recognized finally, once again. So um, I discovered that history. And then um, walking around, there's, there's a lot of, this place is steeped in history. You know, all of Europe is, but this town in particular, there is an amazing cathedral that's just incredible. And outside that cathedral is a statue of Joan of Arc. And so, you know, I was like, you know, why is the statue here? So then I did some more research and, you know, discovered that this town and that cathedral is where French kings were coronated, like throughout all of history. And when, you know, Joan of Arc led Charles VII to France to be coronated and to take France back from England. And so then that, you know, I was like, wow, that's pretty incredible. That means, you know, for centuries, this place has had some women breaking boundaries. And so I did some more research. I went by the tourist center and found out that they also had a big history with uh, women, business women. Some of the first business women in France were here. They started uh, champagne, well, took over champagne sellers from their fathers or husbands and revolutionized the industry. So really cool history. Um, Talked to some of the players about, you know, told them that because obviously none of them knew any of that and asked them, you know, what it would feel like to, to become part of that history. And they gave me some great answers. And I like to think that that was the motivation behind that 13, (laughs) 13 zero. Well done, Alicia. Well done, Alicia. And then of course, all the, all the controversy surrounding the, uh, the, (laughs) the wide gap and margin of victory. But you know, you, you, so you talk about, you went back to to talk to the players. I'm going to ask you, how about yourself, editor of Pro Soccer USA? Not that long ago, a, a woman may not have been hired for the position you're in right now. Huh. You don't? Yeah, I mean, I, well, so I guess. There could yeah. be, there's impact <laughs> yeah. all the way around. Never really thought about it that way. But I guess, you know, you don't really until someone points it out to you. So, yeah, it's, it's been a, a cool place to be, and, and I'm happy to be back here. Well, one day, Alicia, it won't be uh, that big a deal that a woman gets hired to do the work that maybe men were dominant in uh, in the past. Alicia Del Gallo is the uh, editor of Pro Soccer USA, and she's our guest. And you met up with the U.S. women's national team uh, fathers yeah. on Father's Day ahead of Ch- mm-hmm. uh, the, the match in Paris against Chile. I just want to read the opening paragraph from, from your story. Bob Mewis remembers when his daughter was younger and won the Massachusetts State Soccer Final on Father's Day, and he thought that was the greatest thing in the world. He never imagined that he would be spending his 2019 Father's Day watching his daughter play in the World Cup. So, what what kind of feel did you get for the fathers? Just like they couldn't believe they were there, or you know, what was it like? Ah, oh, let me tell you, Bob Mewis. First of all, it was just the greatest to speak to he was so happy and so excited looked like he might you know tear up a little bit um talking about it but yeah it was really fun and the the funny thing is is that so while I'm out here I'm I'm producing at least two stories a day and sometimes if there's a day off or there's limited access or it's a game day uh 
you know, that second story can be tough to find. And so I thought, you know what? I know that there's fathers here because I saw video of them all celebrating during the Thailand game on, on Twitter. Um, let me, let me go ask if I can, if I can talk to them. And so I was able to get a couple of fathers and then I, I needed a picture of them. And so I walked to the friends and family section and called all the fathers down and had them all kind of crunched together, which was hilarious because when they first lined up for this photo, they were standing in a straight line about an arm's length away from each other. <laughs> and so, well, I'm looking at the photo now, so it came out fine. You know, they're all in their yeah, red, white, so and blue. It's beautiful. Close enough, close enough in that photo was the task. But yeah, it turned out really great. You could tell, um, you know, some of the fathers who had been there, like Alex Morgan's dad and Tobin Heath's dad, who had been to multiple World, World Cups, had to think for a second to to remember if they had ever been uh, to a World Cup on a Father's Day. And the consensus was, you know, maybe, probably, but definitely not a game not on ga- Father's Day. Not game day, day. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it was really, really great and special for them. And it was cool to see all the fathers together. And, you know, what a what a great experience it was for all of them on Father's Day. And kind of hearing them, you know, I asked them what they got for Father's Day or if they had heard from their daughters. And most of them had gotten phone calls or text messages or FaceTimes uh, in the morning before the game to, to wish them that. So it was kind of here. It was kind of cool to hear, you know, their relationship with the players and, and their preferred method of wishing their fathers a, a happy Father's Day. Did I, I wondered if they, did they get a chance to see their daughters at all between matches? How does that work? Yeah, so um, there's not a whole lot of time between matches, but I guess um, U.S. soccer and, and the way that the schedule is set, they set aside some some designated time for mm. friends and family. Yeah. And then also they're able to, you know, if they're not training and it's not too late, um, go out to dinner or go grab a coffee. Um, some of the players mentioned going to dinner with their parents like quite a bit. So um I think they're able to not spend a whole lot of time with them, but sneak away for some meals. All right, Alicia. One final thought, and just uh, getting away a bit from the the feature side, and I'm wondering uh, if this has been discussed at all among the journos who are on this trip. But there's one thing that that seems a, a bit odd, and that's the uh, the subpar crowds at these games. Certainly not at the U.S. games, but many others where the stadiums are half full. And we know that FIFA uh, said that a million tickets were sold prior to the uh, start of the World Cup, and right. uh, which sounded like a, a really a, you know good strong figure. Now we're learning that they included journalists, uh, VIPs, I don't know other <laughs> other branches of society that did not include people who were just purchasing the tickets. Beyond the fact yeah. that the, that whole scandal of of people that you know ordering four tickets and then not being able to sit together. And this is like counters with the fact that the television audiences have been massive. Brazil, yeah. I mean, so it, it's it seems to be a dichotomy. What 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 do you think about all of it? Yeah, it, it's strange. It's something that I think a lot of us have have written about and are continuing to speak about. And also, though, you're seeing like even at these U.S. matches that they're announced sellouts, so there are no tickets available. You know, the ticket windows are closed. They say sold out, and yet some people aren't showing up to the games um, 
because they're not announced sellouts when the attendance is announced. They're good crowds, but they're not complete sellouts. Um, so it's definitely a contrast. There's talk about, you know, the marketing that went in, whether um, certain places, um, whether the local organizing committees were prepared for the interest in the World Cup, whether they knew about it, whether they just kind of brushed it off so they didn't, you know, they didn't market it well enough. And then in the towns that did have big crowds, for example, La Havre, it was a logistical nightmare there the other night. Um, people couldn't find taxis. They couldn't get back to their hotels. Like there were huge lines. You know, one of my freelancers that was there with me, she took the media bus back to our hotel, but then we waited in the lobby for an hour for for a cab to come pick her up to bring her to her hotel. And that was like the least of it, um, the photos that came out online. So there are some, some issues overall um, related to that, what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I just recall early on when uh, people, uh, uh, there, were, there was a lot on Twitter uh, when uh, some of the journalists and just uh, uh, those that were going to attend the games arrived in Paris and they couldn't they couldn't find any signage. You know, <laughs> there was no mm-hmm. indication that the the World Cup was taking place. And here they are uh, in Paris. But I think for the most part of the other thing that you heard is that uh, the, the police or whoever involved, they were all very kind and, and you know, apologetic. Nonetheless, uh, these things uh, have uh, tended to uh, occur and uh these nightmares uh, you think could be avoided. But anyway, I just I wanted to ask you about this ticket thing because it, it just seems so crazy. But Alicia, I uh, you know, we appreciate everything uh, you're writing and sharing with us on Pro Soccer USA. So everybody, ProSoccerUSA.com. Check out all yeah. the stories and uh, you'll be there through the World Cup final July 7th. So uh, enjoy. Get some sleep and uh, we'll be sure to read it all. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Alicia. Perfect. Thanks, Glenn. I'm going to leave you with one note from the field. The long-awaited quarterfinal is set. The U.S. women's national team will meet the hosts, France, on Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern. I'm hosting a pre- and post-game show on Sirius XMFC. It's called Stars and Stripes. The former U.S. women's national team midfielder Lori Lindsay is my co-host. That'll start at 2 p.m. Eastern on Friday, and then we'll be on one hour after the game on Channel 157. Well, that'll do it for this edition of On Frame. Thank you so much for listening. This is Glenn Crooks.